Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. I hope you are all well. Before we get into today's video, this is the last video of April. Please, in the comments section below, if you have a May birthday, please go ahead and list that. As the very first video released in May, I will be doing birthday shoutouts. From here on out, I will only be doing birthday shoutouts at the beginning of the month. It is time to go back to the mysterious, dark, and just absolutely terrifying. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I know this genre here is the one that gives me nightmares every night. Before we get started, down in the description box below, if you would like to support Back to Ashes, you can become a member for $1.99 a month or up, depending on the tier that you choose. Also, there is a buy me a coffee. Each donation is truly appreciated as it helps me and the channel. With all of that being said, it is time to go back to ashes. For when we arise from the ashes, we are a better, stronger, happier person in the morning. Sit back, relax, kick back, grab a snack, or tuck in and get warm. And let's get started with this dose of vocal melatonin as we revisit Unsolved Mysteries, Volume 2. Right after this introduction, an ad will play. I'll read the first case. Another ad will play. And there will be no more ads within this video. Disclaimer. Some of the information within these cases may be sensitive to some. Listening discretion is advised. The girl from the main, tortured for years, murdered and dumped into a river in 2001. Identity still unknown. In the early afternoon of July 31st, 2001, Passers-by in Frankfurt, Germany, found a bundle drifting in the river main. It contained the unclothed body of a teenage girl. To this day, her identity is unknown. What is known is that her life must have been horrifying for a long time before her death. While the cause of death was blunt trauma that caused the ribs to puncture the lung and spleen, that was far from the only injury discovered in the autopsy. Both arms had been fractured and healed without proper medical care. There were multiple large scars on the victim's legs and torso, as well as small burn scars, most likely caused by cigarettes, all over her body. The time of death was about three days before the body was found and it had been drifting in the water for 12 to 14 hours. 
The girl's age was estimated to be around 15 or 16 years of age, although she was very slim and may have looked younger. DNA and hair mineral analysis revealed that she was born and grew up in Pakistan, Afghanistan, or northern India, but had lived in Germany for about two years before her death. An origin from Pakistan or Afghanistan seems more likely since the bed sheets the body was wrapped in were bound with two cloth belts, typical for that region, known as Nala's. This has led to speculation, so far not substantiated by anything, that the girl may have been brought to Germany either for an arranged marriage or as a servant. Police investigation in the case was quite intense and long, involving the Pakistani, Afghani, and Indian communities in Germany. Investigating all known female immigrants of matching age from these countries to the Frankfurt region, and even putting up search posters in these countries. Additionally, over 100 ships that had passed that river section during the time the body was in the water were searched. Nothing came of it. The girl from the Maine found her last resting place in a cemetery in northern Frankfurt under a gravestone paid for by police officers involved in the investigation. A vice president of a small town bank is kidnapped and burned alive in a town of less than 5,000. Over 40 years later and still no answers. It's 1978, and the place is Muscuda, Illinois. Homecoming weekend is in full swing. Everyone is at the city park, and the party goes late into the night. Sometime after the park starts to empty, a couple asleep in their home jolt awake at the sound of screams coming from the soybean field in the front of the house. They drive to the sound and sight of fire in the beans to find a man walking towards them covered in burns. His name is Joseph Dressler. Hours before, Joseph was returning to the park after having dropped his wife off at his house to walk to the nominees for homecoming queen to the stage. He relayed to the man and woman that he was abducted at knife point by two young men and forced to drive to the location on Jefferson Road. The two kidnappers soaked him and his car in gasoline and lit it up. He was rushed to the hospital where he later passed away. Two days after Joseph died, a 15-year-old girl claimed to be involved and named at least five other people. She claimed to drive a car the abductors got away in. This led to her being arrested, questioned, and eventually charged with murder. The others she had named were questioned with no evidence being found, pointing to them being involved. The case against her was dropped after a child psychiatrist pointed out stories that she had made it in the past that had turned out 
to be false. She also has come out and apologized for the false lead and acknowledged it may have harmed the investigation. After having the charges dropped, there have been absolutely no movement in the case. To this day, this case remains a cold file. The Unsolved Murder of Belinda Snowden, Florida, July 1986 There isn't much information available about Belinda's whereabouts or the time frame leading up to her murder. The story did not receive media attention, and some of the specifics surrounding the case are unknown. Belinda Maisel Snowden was born on May 3, 1971. She was from Jackson County, Florida, about an hour north of Panama City. In 1986, the family lived in the small town of Round Lake. At the time, Belinda had one sister and a younger brother. She was a student at Alford School and was enjoying the last weeks of her summer break. During the week of July 21st, Belinda was visiting family members with her mother. They were staying with family in Wakula County, an hour and a half south from their home. The Disappearance On the evening of Friday, July 25th, Belinda was at her relative's home, located in an area of the county that was known as Wakula Station. Her relatives left her home for several hours that night to deliver newspapers. When they returned, Belinda was no longer there and she had not left a note behind. It remains unclear why she left the residence. Multiple eyewitnesses reported seeing Belinda near what was then a junior food store a few blocks away from her relative's home. Around midnight, Belinda was seen at the intersection of Woodville Highway 267 and Highway 363 across from Junior Food Store. She was wearing a pink shirt and blue jeans. This is the last time Belinda is believed to have been seen alive. The Murder At 6 a.m. on Saturday, July 26th, Belinda's family called the Wakula County Sheriff's Department to report her missing. Later that afternoon, police in neighboring Jefferson County also received a frantic phone call. At 1.30 p.m., two fishermen had discovered a nude body off of a dirt trail near some fishing holes. The body was positively identified as Belinda Snowden. Her body was found east off of State Road 59 in a densely wooded area, about 10 miles south of the town of Wakissa and a half-hour drive from the junior food store. Police were able to conduct a tire pattern impression on some of the tire tracks found near her body. A cloth belt-like accessory was the only other item recovered from the scene. On July 27th, Autopsy results determined the cause of death was strangulation with an object other than hands. 
Belinda had been strangled with a rope-type device, possibly by the cloth belt found at the crime scene. Her death was officially declared a homicide. Investigators did not believe Belinda was killed at the location she was found because of the condition of her body. She was found nude and relatively clean and did not appear to have been in the woods prior to her death. Her clothes were not recovered and there were no signs of a struggle. Old newspaper articles reported that the Florida Department of Law Enforcement was conducting laboratory tests to determine whether or not Belinda had been sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, there is no further mention of this. DNA testing was not readily available in 1986, and it is unknown what samples were taken or if any contained DNA evidence. Because investigators encourage Belinda's family to remain quiet and not speak to the media, there is not a lot of information about her family or the reactions to her murder. Her uncle described her as a nice, bashful girl. She was loved by her classmates at Alford School, and many local residents of Round Lake continuously share her story on Facebook in hopes of generating attention to the case. In April 2021, Belinda's mother died without learning who murdered her daughter. The last update on the case was in March 2007 and urged anyone with information to contact the authorities. On August 1st, 1974, in Jacksonville, Florida, Millette, 6, and Annette, 11, Anderson, spoke to their father on the phone at 7 p.m. 20 minutes later, they were gone. On August 1, 1974, Elizabeth Anderson and her oldest sister Donna left their home in the Ocean Way neighborhood of Jacksonville, Florida, around 6 p.m. They were off to care for a sick relative and asked her husband Jack Anderson, a commercial fisherman, was meant to be home around that time after a fishing trip. There was little worry of leaving Millette, who was six, and her sister Annette, who was 11, who also went by Lillian, alone for a short time. Oceanway seemed to be a relatively quiet area at the time. Wikipedia states it was mainly isolated houses and farmland at the time, and their sister Donna says they lived on a secluded single road. Jack Anderson, their father, ran into boat trouble and was unable to make it home at 6. He called about an hour later at around 7 to check in on the girls. They seemed to be fine and not worried about being left home alone. Jack noticed when he called that the family dog was barking. Annette informed him that the dog was simply barking at birds in the yard and not to worry about it. After getting off the phone, Jack was still worried about the girls and the barking dog. Calling back 20 minutes later, no one answered the phone. 
It's within these 20 minutes since the first phone call to the second that police believe Milet and Annette went missing. When their father arrived home, he found the girls missing and their dog locked in the parents' bedroom. Milet's favorite doll, one she is said to have carried everywhere, was also missing. When police arrived, they spoke to neighbors who reported a white car outside of the house in the driveway sometime between 6 p.m. and 7 p.m., but said they saw nothing suspicious and never actually saw the girls leave the home. There was no forced entry. The doors were closed, but not locked. Donna Anderson, their older sister, when speaking on the disappearance as an adult, recalled that whoever it was would have had to lock the dog away as it would have attacked anyone trying to harm Annette as they were so close. She also believes because of how secluded their home was, whoever took them must have had a plan. Volunteers and police searched for the girls for days, scouring over 100 square miles. More reports came at this time, some claiming they saw the girls riding around town in a pickup truck, another claiming they saw the girls picking up bottles in a schoolyard. But nothing ever came of these claims. It does not say what schoolyard, but it may have been Louise Sheffield Elementary, where the girls attended before their disappearance. Millette and Annette Anderson's disappearances are only two of five disappearances of young girls in Jacksonville, Florida in 1974, only two of which have ever been found. Virginia Suzanne Helm, missing September 27th, and Rebecca Ann Green, missing October 12th, both 12, but no arrests have ever been made in the murders of either girl. Nine-year-old Jean Marie Schoen, missing July 21st, and the Anderson sisters have never been found. John Paul Knowles, known as the Casanova Killer, has claimed that he was responsible for the disappearances and deaths of the Anderson sisters and informed police they were buried in the west end of Commonwealth Avenue. They searched the area, but still could not find the girls. Knowles was killed in 1974 in Henry County, Georgia, by David Clark after a two-day manhunt, leaving the only trail they had cold. Knowles was also known to inflate his number of victims, as so many serial killers are. He is tied to 18, but claimed 35. Jack Anderson eventually filed a lawsuit of wrongful death against Knowles' estate, but I am unsure what happened with this lawsuit. The police also do not believe he was involved. There has still not been any trace of the girls, and after nearly 49 years, her parents have long since passed away, never knowing what happened to their children. Their sister continues the search. Were the Anderson sisters unfortunate victims of a killing spree committed by Knowles, 
Or was there another killer stalking Jacksonville, Florida in 1974? It doesn't seem the other girls missing at the time, all similar age to the Anderson sisters, have been claimed by Knowles, and their cases have also never been solved. What happened in those 20 minutes between their father calling and their disappearance? It doesn't seem there was a lot of commotion left behind. How was someone able to move the dog to a locked room if they were so protective of Annette? Did the girls put the dog away? Was it someone they trusted? Or were the girls simply attempting to be helpful to someone who had come in through the door? Who was in the white car? There is very little information about this car, and despite how secluded the area was, no one seemed to be particularly concerned about it. Which makes me wonder if it wasn't uncommon for people to come and go from the area, or if the neighbors were just the least nosy in the small secluded area. I just hope some closure can be brought to the remaining family of the Anderson sisters. Having to wait nearly 50 years with no answers is crushing, and their parents passing on without ever knowing what happened to their babies. It is truly heartbreaking. Teenage girl agrees to meet much older man. She fails to show up for dinner, and he reports her missing. Angela Sigrid Ramsey. Angela was 16 in 1977 when she went missing. She would have been 60 years old now. She was about 5'3 and about 115 pounds. Angela hitchhiked from her hometown of Columbia, South Carolina to Dillon, Florida, in June 1977 to visit friends. She stayed at the Boulevard Motel on Woodland Boulevard in Dillon for two days, beginning June 19th. Angela was sunbathing at the motel pool when she met a much older man who asked her to go out to dinner. She happily accepted and set up a date. She was reported missing on June 21st when she failed to show up for a dinner date with the older guy she had met in Deland. Upon searching her motel room, police discovered that all of her personal belongings, such as clothing and jewelry, were still present, as well as a photo of Angela herself taken at the Boulevard Motel swimming pool. The photo was taken by the man Angela had a dinner date with on the 21st. Investigators also discovered a letter Angela had written to her best friend in South Carolina, but never mailed. It said she missed Columbia and her mother. Authorities interviewed the man who had reported Angela missing and said he was not a suspect in her case. He also found her motel room key, which he turned over to investigators. Angela's father was an officer in the U.S. Army. Because the family traveled extensively, she had many friends across the country. Her mother told authorities that her daughter had hitchhiked to Florida with truckers 
and then stayed with a friend in Florida before checking into the Boulevard Motel. Angela's boyfriend apparently offered her money before she left, but she declined the offer. During her visit, her boyfriend's family described her as a well-mannered and polite teenager. Foul play is suspected. Angela was last known to be at a motel in Deland, Florida. Angela has not been seen or heard from since. She has a small scar on the left side of her face. She has brown hair and brown eyes. On the 30th anniversary of Ramsey's disappearance, 2007, investigators have re-interviewed witnesses, including the man who is now a corrections officer in Brevard County, but have no new leads. The Survivors Every year on her birthday, Ramsey's mother places a photo of her daughter on the dining room table. She surrounds it with roses and prays for her daughter to come home. She still has the letter, yellowed and torn, that her daughter sent her before she disappeared. It reads, I really miss my mama. If you have any info, please contact the Luzia County Sheriff's Office, Daytona Beach, Florida. Main phone number, area code 386-254-1537. Where is Florence Helen Okpiluk? Florence Helen Okpiluk, 33, was a mother to a little girl. Her daughter was six at the time of disappearance, and she was pregnant with another little one on the way. I'm sorry, I don't know how many months along she was. I tried to find the info, but was unsuccessful. She lived in Nome, Alaska, which had a population of 3,699 in the year 2020, as per Wikipedia, which cities the 2020 census. Nome has a high indigenous population. The largest Nome racial ethnic groups are Native American, 53%, followed by white, 26.1%, and two or more races, 11.1%. The city of Nome is purported to be home to the world's largest gold pan, although this claim has been disputed by the Canadian city of Quesnel, British Columbia. Florence's nickname was Flo to her friends and baby Flory to family. She was an indigenous person and, specifically, was Inupiaq. She was 5'2 and 142 pounds. Her hair was black and so were her eyes. She was the second youngest of six siblings. Florence was interested in her tribe's traditions and as a child used a yulu, a crescent-shaped knife. While still pregnant with her first child in 2013, Florence moved to Nome, Alaska, so her daughter could access better health care and education than what was available in Florence's hometown of Wells, Alaska, a hundred miles northwest of Nome. Upon moving, she worked at Norton Sound Health Corporation, which is a nonprofit health organization 
that is tribally owned and operated. She was passionate about caring for others. According to the NBC link, Florence was last seen getting out of a tent on West Beach, which is one to two miles out of Nome, Alaska, at about 4 p.m. on August 31, 2020. She left her shoes and jacket outside the tent. She was never seen again after that sighting. On the Charlie Project link, it says her last sighting was at that same time of 4 p.m., but for whatever reason, it says a different date of September 1, 2020. The Nome Police Department said Florence was reported missing at 6.15 p.m. on August 31st of 2020. Florence's struggles with alcoholism did not cease despite being pregnant. Although her alcoholism was uncontrolled, she was described as an involved parent to her daughter, who was already born and was able to co-parent her well with her ex-partner, the father of her daughter. Her sister, Blair, tried to convince her to get help for her alcoholism and had a conversation with her that didn't go well on August 29, 2020. That was the last time she ever saw her. Apparently, according to Blair, it wasn't a very good conversation. I was just scolding her about her drinking and what she was losing in life. Time went by after that interaction without hearing anything from her sister, so Blair went to all the places Florence would go. She didn't see her at any of them, and there weren't many useful leads until she spoke with a bartender that said he thought she had headed to West Beach to continue partying with a gold miner. Gold miners are known to camp out at that beach during the summer. West Beach is one to two miles from Nome. Blair and one of her brothers continued to seek answers about Florence's whereabouts. They went up to many of the people camping out on the beach without hesitation, going right up to their tents. They found a witness who was the one who saw Florence exit her tent at four on August 31st. Blair was given Florence's shoes, socks, and jacket by someone at the beach. Only Florence's shoes and jacket were mentioned to the Charlie Project link in the source list but it doesn't say anything about her socks being left by the tent. The NBC article did not specify who had given Blair Florence's clothing and shoes. She spoke to many people, so it was left vague. The Charlie Project page just says the clothing and shoes were left outside a tent. Blair searched West Beach from daylight until dark and continued that pattern for eight months to no avail. In the following years, there have not been any updates. Florence's daughter is being raised by her biological father. What do you think happened to Florence? Do you think Florence may have ended up in the water and, due to inebriation, unfortunately drowned? Do you think something happened with the gold miner and her death disappearance is the result? Do you think alcoholism's hold over Florence perhaps made her feel hopeless? Was this a suicide without law enforcement finding her body? 
whatever it is. I hope whatever happened to Florence and her unborn baby comes to light. I recently read about a disappearance about another indigenous woman and mother from Alaska who was an alcoholic, Mary and Alexi. Commenters describe alcoholism as a problem that runs rampant in Alaska and that there are many people who unfortunately turn up missing or dead after leaving somewhere inebriated. Tracy Mead, London Tracy Mead was a 14-year-old girl from Paddington in London, whose body was found in Grand Union Canal, near Kinsall Rise, on the 1st of February, 1992. She had last been seen by her mother on the 20th of January, 1992, in the flat that they lived in. She had spent the previous day at her grandmother's and seemed to be okay. Going by what I can gather, she spent a lot of time with other members of her family. Indeed, she had told her mother she was going to spend the night with her aunt and was given money for bus fares, and that was the last time she was seen alive by her family. She never arrived at her aunt's house, nor had she attended school. Her disappearance was reported on the 22nd of January to the police, and it seems the family was unsatisfied with their response. There were various reported sightings of her after this, some in the local area. From what I've read elsewhere, she was a streetwise teenager who wandered about the streets of northwest London with similar-aged people. Although she's been playing truant, she had never gone missing prior to this. Sightings in this period placed her at various locations. One person seen as someone fitting her description, arguing with a fair-haired boy at Halfpenny Steps Bridge on Harrow Road, the 22nd of January. There had been further reported sightings in various cafes. One of the last was of a girl fitting her description, leaving a Chinese restaurant with a black Scottish man. When her body was found in Grand Union Canal, it had two stab wounds and was partially clothed. Her other clothing was found in other locations along the canal. Although there wasn't any evidence of a sexual assault due to the nature of her injuries and the way she was found, a sexual motive was seen as most probable by the police. The coroner ruled it as an unlawful killing and cause of death was drowning. The case featured on a BBC program called Crime Watch, which appealed for information, but it seems that efforts ran aground as people in the local community and friends who were unwilling to come forward. One of the investigating officers at the time proposed what he felt happened. She went there willingly to a place called Mitre Bridge, but things got out of hand and she ended up in the canal. It probably didn't help that some press at the time used a case as an example of the dangers of drugs or solvent abuse even though there was 
little to suggest that had much part to play in the case. The family have made various appeals over the years, without any progress, unfortunately. And as with a lot of cases, it seems that it will be a case of changing alliances, hoping that someone who was there that night will come clean on what happened. In September 1966, 15-year-old Linda Glover vanished from Indianapolis, Indiana. Just over two weeks later, her severely decomposed body was found, bound with wire and wrapped in blankets, in White River by a local fisherman. On September 28, 1966, 15-year-old Linda Sue Ann Glover mysteriously vanished. A sophomore at Indianapolis, Indiana's Arsenal Technical High School, Linda had spent the afternoon babysitting for a neighbor. Around 6.30 p.m., Linda concluded her sitter duties and returned to her East Michigan Street home. Minutes later, Linda asked her grandmother, 60-year-old Ethel Garrison, who lived in the home, if she could go out to get a soda. With both a supermarket and gas station located a block away, and considering Linda had made the journey many times in the past, Ethel agreed. However, as the night wore on and Linda failed to return home, Ethel began to worry. After a search of the neighborhood failed to produce the missing teen, Linda was reported missing. An all-out search for Linda quickly ensued. Police began by questioning her family in the household, which, besides Ethel, consisted of Linda's mother, 34-year-old Mary Glover, and Linda's older brother, 16-year-old Alan. Mary explained that she worked two jobs to help care for her children. During the day as a waitress and during the evening at Western Electric Company. While at work, Ethel would care for Linda and Alan. Alan could only offer the information that Linda had recently begun buying diet shakes and in all likelihood would have gone to the supermarket as the gas station did not carry the drinks. While none could offer any insight into Linda's current whereabouts, all three family members agreed this was completely out of character for Linda. They described her as an outgoing girl with many friends, but added she was also responsible, mature, and had never been in any kind of trouble. An aunt who lived nearby was also questioned and was quoted as saying, Linda had a lot of friends, but has been reared very strictly and was not permitted out on the streets after nightfall. Linda's classmates, principal, and friends were next to be questioned. Like her family, Linda's classmates described her as a good girl. Her principal told investigators that, prior to her disappearance, Linda had had nearly perfect attendance and had never had any disciplinary problems. Nearly 50 of Linda's known friends who were questioned agreed that Linda would never simply run away. On October 13th, Just over two weeks after Linda vanished, a local fisherman, 63-year-old Clyde Bland, 
had spent the morning on White River. Just before noon, Clyde guided his small rowboat towards a large pile of twigs that had accumulated near the bank of the river. As he neared, Clyde came to the sudden and horrifying realization that entangled within the debris was a severely decomposed body. When Allen heard the report on the radio that afternoon, he quickly headed for Indianapolis's Marion County General Hospital. His worst fears were confirmed when he positively identified the remains as belonging to his sister, Linda. Police arrived at the Glover home a short time later to deliver the devastating news to Mary and Ethel. Linda was found floating face up in five feet of water approximately ten yards from shore. She was clad in a torn long sleeve pink blouse and a red, white, and blue skirt with a white slip underneath. Her shoes, stockings, and underwear were all missing. She wore a charm bracelet and two rings, a friendship ring on one hand and a sweetheart ring on the other. Linda was wrapped in wire from the waist up and her hands were bound behind her back. She was wrapped in two layers, a blue blanket that covered the upper portion of her body and a second sheet layer that encased her body entirely. An autopsy concluded that Linda had been in the water for at least ten days. Bruises discovered on her head and face indicated that Linda had been beaten. However, her ultimate cause of death was determined to be due to a broken neck. No proof of sexual assault was found. However, due to the severe decomposition, this could not be determined with 100% certainty. While continuing their investigation, detectives learned Linda was frequently in the company of her older cousin, 26-year-old Donald Munden. Donald, a married man who worked as a local mechanic, lived on the same street as Linda and would often accompany her to school wrestling matches before driving her home. When Donald was questioned, he revealed that he and Linda had had a romantic relationship in the past, however, denied having any knowledge of her murder. Eleven days after Linda's body was found, police arrested Donald, charging him with the murder of his cousin. It was revealed that during their investigation, aside from the confession of a secret relationship, investigators had discovered a blanket in Donald's garage with a considerable amount of blood on it. The evidence sufficed and Donald was bound over to the Marion County Grand Jury. Donald's attorney argued that while the blood stain found on the blanket did match the same blood type as Linda had, type AB, Donald also had the same blood type. According to Donald, he had cut himself while working on a vehicle in the garage and used the rag to stop the bleeding. It was further argued that while Linda did bear several bruises, she suffered no wounds that would cause such extreme blood loss. Donald also agreed to take a polygraph test. During Donald's incarceration, police received several reports of a prowler or 
Peeping Tom in Linda's neighborhood. In each instance, a man with a flashlight was seen attempting to look into windows of houses where young girls lived, including the home of 15-year-old Diane Ray, Linda's best friend. On October 19th, the incident escalated when 14-year-old Judy Rippey, another friend of Linda's who lived only two houses away, was grabbed and choked by a man who approached her while she walked to her bus stop. When the man grabbed her, another neighborhood girl, 13-year-old Becky Kearley, saw the attack and began screaming for help. The man released his grip and ran away. In all instances, the families reported that it took a patrol car nearly 30 minutes to arrive. Despite detailed descriptions from all the witnesses, the man was never found. In January 1967, Donald was released from jail after it was determined the evidence against him was insufficient to charge him with Linda's murder. In August of the same year, however, Donald again made news when he killed a man with a shotgun. Police discovered an injured man lying in the doorway of a garage near Donald's home. He died a short time later at the hospital. When questioned initially, Donald denied having any knowledge of the incident. Later, however, he confessed he had accidentally shot the man. According to Donald, he had thought the man was a burglar. When he went to investigate, shotgun in hand, the man grabbed the gun and Donald accidentally discharged the weapon, striking the man in the stomach. Donald claimed he was scared to tell the truth due to his past suspected involvement with Linda's murder. He was not charged in the incident. Donald died in 2005 at the age of 65. Linda Glover was laid to rest in Indianapolis's Memorial Park Cemetery. Despite a continued investigation and an offer of a $1,000 reward, Linda's case quickly went cold and unfortunately has remained that way ever since. The sudden disappearance of 15-year-old Amy and the murder of her brother five years later. What happened to them? Are both crimes related? Amy Fitzpatrick was last heard from on January 1st, 2008. The 15-year-old Irish girl was going back from her closest friend, Ashley's residence, in the Calypso urbanization of Mia's Malaga. She regularly took a shortcut which took her only 20 minutes to get to her house in the Rivera del Sol community, where she resided with her mother, Audrey, brother, Dean, and stepfather, Dave, Mahone. That day, she took the shortcut, but she never came back. Amy Fitzpatrick was allegedly kidnapped and was still alive in Madrid in June 2009. According to a man who called Fitzpatrick's mother on the phone in an unidentified way. Later, the same individual texted for a ransom of 500,000 euros. It was discovered that the call and text came from prepaid phones. Later, 
Officials and private detectives were unable to track down the enigmatic caller and discover whether his claims were really accurate. Dean, Amy's 23-year-old brother, was fatally stabbed in Dublin five years after Amy vanished. The killing was eventually determined to be manslaughter. Who committed this crime? None other than Dave Mahone, who was living with the Fitzpatrick at the time of Amy's disappearance and was Amy's mother's lover. Her last steps. This new clue could shed light on a disappearance that, to this day, remains a mystery. Ashley Rubio, Amy's best friend, was in charge of reconstructing the last hours in which Amy was seen in her company. According to the miner, who at the time of the disappearance was 13 years old, Amy spent New Year's Eve at her house, looking after Ashley's little brother. We were on the computer for a while, chatting with our friends on Messenger, Ashley recalled. Her mother, Deborah Rose, confirmed her daughter's account. When they woke up that day, the girls went to Wengrola, believing that the cell season had begun. When they realized that it was a holiday, they went back to the Zoka area in Kalahonda, and from there, back to Ashley's house. According to the girl's mother, Amy asked her to stay over one more night, but she told her to go home and wish her family a happy new year, with a see you tomorrow. The two friends said goodbye, but never saw each other again. It was 2200 on the 1st of January, 2008. Ashley also explained how Amy was dressed that day. A black diesel t-shirt with a gray tracksuit. In her hand, a Bershka bag with a tracksuit that Ashley had left her. Among her belongings, a pink Irish mobile phone that Amy used to listen to music. According to her friend, she had a Spanish phone, but her stepfather had broken it in an argument they had had a few days earlier. Hypothesis When the Guardia Sybil, in charge of the investigation, took up the case, they saw no evidence of criminality. So they concluded that the young woman had run away voluntarily. As they reported, Amy had previously disappeared, at least for a few hours, and one of the last discussions she had had with her family concerned the cancellation of a trip she and her brother Dean had planned to Ireland to see their biological father. Christine, her aunt, stated that Amy was not happy in Spain, that she wanted to return to Ireland, and that the situation of the child at home was not ideal. As she stated to various media, Amy's mother went on holiday with the children and did not return. In Spain, Amy was punished for being locked out of the house being forced to enter her home through the kitchen window. Inside, the situation was not much better. Dean's Murder The family's lawyer revealed that both Amy's mother and stepfather drank a lot and that they were always drinking and arguing. In one of these arguments between the stepfather, Dave, and Amy's brother, Dean, the latter ended up dead from a stabbing. It was 2013. Five years earlier, Amy had disappeared. 
Dean was 23 years old. Recent news. More than 15 years later, little is known about the strange disappearance of Amy Fitzpatrick. Or, at least, little was known. Recently, her family received a tip-off from an anonymous woman who sent them a letter stating that Amy is dead and buried in the fifth stable in the fifth block of the old racecourse on the outskirts of Wigrala, just 10 minutes from where she was last seen on New Year's Day 2008, as reported by the Irish Mirror newspaper. Missing Lindsay Nichols On the day that 14-year-old Lindsay Jill Nichols disappeared, she was last seen walking down Royston Road, outside of Comex on Vancouver Island. It was August 2, 1993, the Monday of the BC day-long weekend, and Lindsay was meeting friends at the annual Comex Nautical Days Festival. Lindsay was a slim, five-foot-three with green eyes and long blonde hair. The family had relocated to Comax from Delta in the summer of 1992. Lindsay missed her friends and was constantly at odds with her parents. A few months earlier, Lindsay and her dad got into a fight after Martin, an RCMP officer, caught her sneaking out one night. The next morning, she pretended to go to school, but instead packed her clothes and her teddy bear in a backpack, wrote a note for her mother, and ran away to Delta. Judy quickly discovered that when a teen runs away and refuses to come home, that there is little a parent can do. In the end, she struck a bargain with Lindsay. If Lindsay agreed to come home, she could live in temporary foster care and the family would attend counseling. Lindsay was placed with a foster family in Royston, a seaside village located across the bay from Comox. When Judy was interviewed for Cold Case BC, she said that the last time she spoke with Lindsay was on the Friday before the long weekend, when Lindsay phoned from the foster home. I told her how much I loved her and that I missed her. She sounded fine, but even though it had only been a few days, she was already unhappy in the new home. And I thought, perfect, because I wanted her to come home, says Judy. It never occurred to me that being out there now, she was in more danger because she was going to hitchhike into town. The Nichols went away for the long weekend. When they arrived back, Judy phoned the foster home and was shocked to learn that Lindsay had not been seen since the previous day, and nobody had reported her missing. Judy phoned the police. Because Lindsay had run away three months before and had threatened to do so again, police were sure that she had headed back to Delta, but Judy didn't think so. They treated her as a runaway because she had run away before, and there was almost nothing done initially, says Judy. Over the last three decades, police have received more than 400 tips, administered 15 polygraph examinations, and interviewed over 
100 people. Lindsay's file is categorized as missing, foul play suspected. What happened to the body of Linda Spence? What happened to the body of Linda Spence? Linda Spence was working as a financial advisor in Glasgow, Scotland in the early 90s. Linda was reportedly involved in some shady dealing, accepting multiple deposits from elderly people for flats which were never built. In 2010, 27-year-old Linda began to negotiate a deal for what she claimed was a valuable parcel of land near Stansted Airport. As part of this deal, she produced some handmade bond certificates she claimed were issued by the government of Denmark. She attracted an investment of £80,000 from Glaswegian Colin Coates, a man with something of reputation for being involved in criminal enterprise. While looking for further investors for her Strandstead project, she traveled to the USA where the fraudulent bonds caught the attention of the FBI and she quickly left the country. Linda's house of cards was beginning to crumble around her when she returned to Scotland and she ignored repeated attempts at contact from Mr. Coates who was beginning to become concerned about his investment. Coates took matters into his own hands by snatching Linda from the streets of Glasgow in April 2011. Coates hired two associates to watch Linda while she was held captive. Linda's disappearance was investigated by police, who quickly identified Coates as a person of interest based on their financial dealings. Coates denied any involvement in her disappearance, and the investigation appeared to stall. At this point, her family had become aware of Linda's unscrupulous dealings and maintained hope she had simply fled the country. However, Coates was eventually betrayed by a witness who became concerned for his own life due to his knowledge of the crime and Coates' threats to silence him. He went to the police, naming Coates as her kidnapper and giving the names of the associates who had guarded Linda during her ordeal. Upon arrest, the two associates agreed to give evidence against Coates in return for reduced sentences. They reported Linda was kept alive for over two weeks, during which time she was humiliated and tortured by Coates. She was tied to a chair and forced to sit in her own waist, had her thumb cut off, her kneecaps shattered with golf clubs, her feet crushed, and her hands burned with an iron. A further witness claimed Coates showed him Linda's severed thumb during this time. Coates' associates both claimed they did not witness Linda's eventual murder, but believed Coates decapitated her and put her body in the boot of his car. In the days after Linda was believed to have been killed, Coates asked a friend to borrow his boat, but was turned down. Coates was found guilty of Linda's murder, but has always denied involvement. Her body has never been found, 
despite ongoing extensive searches by police Scotland, who say the case will not be closed until Linda is found. The puzzling disappearance of Amy and Scott Fandel, Sterling, Alaska, September 5th, 1978. Scott Fandel, born January 23rd, 1965, and Amy Fandel, born August 25th, 1970, were siblings living in the town of Sterling, Alaska. Scott, aged 13 at the time, and Amy, aged 8, lived with their mother in a cabin in a rural and heavily wooded area off Scott Lake Road and Sterling Highway. The children's parents had gone through a tough divorce, according to a Medium article regarding the case. Their father, Roger Fandel, loved his kids but was unfaithful to his wife, Margaret. Margaret began drinking more alcohol as Roger strayed and finally left her. Margaret, a waitress, worked long hours to pay the bills, and when Roger moved to Arizona, the kids were often unsupervised at their home in a small cabin in the woods near Sterling, Alaska. Margaret, Scott, and A were doing the best they could and making things work. On the night of September 5, 1978, the kids and their mother, Margaret, were at a bar restaurant called Good Time Charlie's with an aunt who was visiting named Kathy Schoenfelder. At around 10 p.m., although another article says they left the bar at 10.30 p.m., that night, Margaret and Kathy walked Scott and Amy back to the family cabin so the two women could return to Good Time Charlie's on their own. It should be noted here that the front door lock to the cabin didn't work, and since the cabin was in a wooded area, so it couldn't really be seen from the road. Margaret told the kids not to stay up late, and she and Kathy left. Scott and Amy then went over to their next-door neighbor's house, the Lupton family. Scott and Amy were friends with the Lupton children, frequently playing and walking to school together. It's unclear what time exactly Amy and Scott went home, although Mrs. Upton would later say she sent the kids home after they were making too much noise. But another neighbor passing by spotted the cabin's lights on at 11.45 p.m. Margaret and Kathy would arrive home between 2 and 3 a.m. the next morning to find the children gone. All the lights in the cabin were off, and Margaret found this to be very unusual because both kids were afraid of the dark and would have left the lights on. The two women also found a box of macaroni and cheese, an open can of tomatoes, and a pot of boiling water on the stove. This meal was something the kids enjoyed, so Margaret didn't find it weird in any way and thought the kids may have gone to bed and forgot about the snack. However, Margaret didn't actually check on them or check to see if they were still at the Lupton's house next door. In fact, Margaret proceeded to go to bed. The next morning, Margaret left for work at around 8.30 a.m. and Kathy woke up at around noon. Kathy assumed the kids were off at school and didn't worry. 
At some point, Margaret called Amy's school so she could pass on a message for her daughter, but was told that Amy wasn't at school. Margaret wanted to leave work in order to find out what was happening, but her boss wouldn't let her. Meanwhile, back at the cabin, the school bus came and went without Amy and Scott getting off. But Kathy truly didn't become worried until the Lupton kids came over to ask where Scott and Amy were and if they could play. The Lupton kids told Kathy that neither Fandle child had been at school. Kathy would call Margaret at work to let her know what was happening, and Margaret immediately called the police. The police searched the area and weren't able to find any trace of Scott and Amy. However, according to the Charlie Project, there were bullet casings around the cabin, but nothing seems to have come of that. There are many theories about the case, mostly leaning towards abduction. Example, did someone overhear that the kids would be alone at the home? Margaret suspected her ex-husband, but when she called her ex's family, because she couldn't initially reach him, they said no one in Arizona had the kids. The ex-husband and dad has been a suspect over the years, but the police haven't found any evidence over the years that the kids were with him. In the years following the kids' disappearance, Margaret would move away to Illinois, and the family cabin would burn down. Margaret and her side of the family still believe that Roger, the ex-husband and dad, had something to do with the case. There aren't really any other suspects in the case, but police have checked leads in California and Canada. Scott Curtis Fandle was 13 years old, 4 feet 11 inches tall, 74 pounds, a white male with brown hair and blue eyes. Amy Lee Fandle was 8 years old, 4 feet 0 inches tall, 52 pounds, a white female with strawberry blonde hair and brown eyes. Scott was last seen wearing a striped t-shirt and jeans, and Amy was last seen wearing a sweater, red and blue vest, and striped jeans. If Scott and Amy are still alive, Scott would currently be 58 and Amy would be 52. Kristen Marie Galvin Background Information 15-year-old Kristen had been increasingly skipping school and her friends had started to change. She met a man online, Arian Jackson, and he became her boyfriend. Jackson was an inspiring rapper from Houston and was known as Young Corleone. He has since been said to have lured and trafficked at least a dozen women and girls, subjecting them to beatings, drugs, and threats. Kristen decided to meet up with Jackson, there's an unclear date, and she went missing for two weeks. She was found on Houston's Bissonette Street, an area notorious for prostitution. The police were not looking for her, but had picked her up. In an interview with Dr. Phil, Kristen's mother states that Kristen was found with $4,000 in cash, 
long uncut nails, and she had lost weight. Kristen also was crying and screaming. You don't know what they made me do. News articles state that the family claimed that Kristen was never the same and that she had been traumatized. The light was gone from my daughter's eyes, says Robin. Kristen was forced to sleep with 15-plus men a day for money. Quote sourced from an article. Two and a half weeks later, on January 2nd, 2020, Kristen disappears again. This time for good. Her mother had given her back her phone the previous day. Kristen's mother, Robin, has hired private investigators and personally scoured the streets for Kristen. She has also checked the social media of everyone Kristen was connected to. She stated, I learn about their gangs in this deep, dark world of sex trafficking. Unclear date, sometime around March 21, 2021. The district attorney brought Robin a recent photo that was taken in Atlanta and asked Robin if the photo was of Kristen. Various witnesses have also reported seeing Kristen on escort sites. Robin was sure the photo was Kristen. However, the DA wouldn't tell her where the photo was sourced, so she searched the web until she found Kristen on escort sites, along with other girls. Robin flew to Atlanta and found the other girls who were advertised, but not Kristen. April 23, 2021. Robin does a media push for Kristen's birthday. April 24, 2021. Robin is contacted by a woman named Latasha. Latasha claims that Kristen is pregnant and being locked inside a house, and she provided an address to Robin. She said that she was also being trafficked and was being held against her will in this home. And this is the home where they put pregnant women. She said that she had managed to escape, but it felt terrible about leaving Kristen behind. Robin also states that Latasha provided information about Kristen that nobody else would have possibly known. Latasha is at first reluctant to speak to the police. However, Robin states that she hand-delivered Latasha to the FBI. Unclear if she provided information or met with Latasha. And that Latasha gives a testimony to the FBI. However, the FBI ruled that the testimony is not credible. Robin receives a text message on Facebook. The message claims to be from Kristen and she claims she is using the phone of a man who doesn't know the rules, and she is asking her mom to go and get a baby that she has just given birth to in a porta potty She states that she was forced to leave the baby in a porta potty June 3rd. A deceased Hispanic infant is found in a porta potty in Houston, while the umbilical cord was still attached. Kristen is also Hispanic. Robin provides the text to the authorities and pushes for a DNA test, but is told she will have to wait six months. They manage to shorten the time to four months. September 29th. 
Robin receives a text that the DNA results show that the DNA is not a match from the FBI. They don't provide any documentation, and when she calls the medical examiner's office, they also did not hear about the results or receive any documentation. Robin decides to check up on Latasha. Full name, Latasha Monique Robinson. She messages her, but does not get a reply. She visits her Facebook, and she finds out that Latasha is dead. January 27, 1983 to July 3, 2021. Latasha's obituary can be found online. Robin contacts a friend of Latasha to ask what happened. The friend tells her that Latasha was sexually assaulted and murdered. However, when she contacts her mother, the mother states that Latasha had had an aneurysm. Robin has helped find multiple girls. However, she has not yet found Kristen or found out what may have happened to Kristen. Multiple men have been charged in connection with the trafficking of Kristen. Arian Jackson has been arrested and sentenced to 27 years in prison due to two separate cases of sex trafficking, including the trafficking of a minor with forced fraud and coercion and slavery and involuntary servitude. Kristen's birthday was on the 23rd of April. She would be 19 as of today. And that, dear listeners, is the end of these Unsolved Mysteries Volume 2. If you are sleeping, I hope Slumberland is treating you kindly. If you are awake, I hope you have enjoyed these cases. My thoughts and prayers go out to all the families affected by these cases to this day. In the meantime, I'll be reading to you soon. Have yourself a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good night.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.